It is so good to see you all here this morning. Somebody know what happened on December 20th of 2020? That was the Sunday I began to preach from the Gospel of John. It has taken us almost two years to make our way through the Gospel of John, but today we will conclude the task. Uh, we have been for two years almost considering this message that became flesh. And we're in the final two chapters where that message is being delivered through the events uh, of the resurrection. And today we will. We will finish uh, the final 11 verses of, of John. So if you were, let me ask you before we jump into it, uh, if you were to represent your walk with Jesus as a line graph, is this what it would look like? Kind of a nice and steady uh, rise from the beginning to Christian maturity? Uh, or maybe uh, you're really good at it and it looks something like this. You know, you started slow, but you kind of caught steam. You know, the, the deeper you got into it, the, the better. It, it just, it just uh, you're, you're about ready to, to experience glory. Um, I tried to draw mine. Maybe yours looks something like mine. John is very upfront about why he wrote this gospel. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. And you might wonder, if I want to heed the invitation, I want to heed the call, I want to put my faith in Jesus, I want to enter into this discipleship life, that John is calling us into, what does that look like? What are we jumping into? And I think it's very fitting that John chooses to conclude his gospel by drawing our attention to the example of one particular disciple. And I think he wants to let his readers know this is kind of what you can expect if you listen to what I'm telling you and you put your faith in Jesus, what is going to happen? Well, let me show you what happened with Peter. And I think that's what we have in this final passage of the gospel. I think we have a portrait of discipleship that's given to us in the final words he has to share about Jesus and Peter. So we're in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. Let's jump right in here. Verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? He tells him, yes, Lord, you know that I have deep affection for you. This is an interesting moment for Peter. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to the apostles, the disciples, and uh, all in Jerusalem. And now a little more time has passed because they've made their way back to Galilee and the, J J Peter and six others uh, go out uh, fishing all night. And they spend all night fishing, catch nothing. In the morning, Jesus is on the shore and, 
he has this moment with them that basically reenacts the start of discipleship for at least uh, three of them. Uh, and certainly Peter's initiation into discipleship where Jesus had provided a miraculous catch of a lot of fish and how that had led to a life of discipleship for Peter. He left his nets and followed Jesus and Jesus told him he was going to make him a fisher of men. Jesus, after the resurrection, reminds the disciple that the disciples through this second miraculous catch that the task is not done and that they are going to continue in this work of being fishers of men. And now the attention focuses specifically on Peter. And uh, I think it's easy to see why Jesus focuses his attention on Peter because even though everybody abandoned Jesus that final night, there was one guy who swore up and down, I don't care what everybody else does, Jesus, I am not doing that. There's one who said, I don't, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but Jesus, I, you can take this to the bank. I will die with you. I will lay down my soul for you. Only hours later to be swearing, I don't even know who Jesus is. May God strike me dead, cross my heart and hope to die. I don't even know him. All to save his miserable skin. So there's a lot to unpack with Peter. And this is who Jesus chooses to focus his attention on. He turns to him, Simon, son of John, and perhaps uh, bringing in his father and his family uh, only adds to his sense of shame. Do you love me more than these? That's literally the way it reads in the Greek. And there's some ambiguity. Uh, what is that these referring to? Is, is the question about the... Uh, object of Peter's devotion. Do you love me, Jesus? Do you love these other disciples around us right now? Or maybe he's talking about the fishing boat and the fish and the nets and the, the work of a fisherman. Do you love fishing more than me? That could be what he's talking about. But I think the construction in the Greek rally really points in a different direction. What's being uh, compared here is not the objects of Peter's love. What's being compared here is Peter's love as opposed to everybody else's love. And the question basically is, do you love me, Peter, more than these other guys do? Now, just a few days back, Peter would have quickly said, oh yeah. I'm, I'm all in. I, and he was convinced that he had made the decision, I am going to love Jesus more than father and mother, more than spouse, more than son or daughter, more than even myself. I will lay my soul down for you, Jesus. Peter thought he was all in. And he had been working so hard to be the best of the best among the disciples. Just a few days ago, I think, Peter would have answered this question very differently. Do you love me more than these do? You bet I do. Peter's response, though, 
completely ignores the comparative approach to discipleship that he had been pursuing previously. And Peter does not reference anybody but himself in his answer. The question, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I have deep affection for you. Uh, I've translated it this way to bring out the fact that we're talking, we're using two different words here. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, there are multiple words that could be translated love. Uh, the one in Jesus' question is agapao. And uh, that is to love, and it, it's often thought of as the word for love that represents the, the, the highest form of it. It's the one most often used to describe God's own perfect love, this selfless, uh, untainted love. And when Peter responds, he changes the word. He doesn't use the verb agapao, he uses the verb phileo, which is, means to have affection for, to like, to consider someone a friend. Now, both of these words are great words. You want people to say this about you. You want people to say, yes, I, I have deep affection. You are dear to me. And that's basically what Peter responds. Now, many translators make no distinction. Most modern translations make no distinction at all between the two words. And there are good reasons for that. Throughout the gospel, John uses both words. And he uses both in the gospel to describe God's love. So he uses phileo when talking about how God loves. So it isn't that he's trying to... Uh, keep them in very separate categories. They really are synonymous terms. But there's something about the significance, I think, that Jesus is using one word and Peter is responding with a different word that I, I can't ignore. And I wonder if it isn't that Peter, in his response, is saying, yes, this agape, this love in its grandest expression, maybe Peter feels like, you know what, I... I used to think that's what I had, but it turns out I'm a coward. It turns out I love myself more than I love you, so I don't know if I can use that word. And I, I, it's not that Peter has that kind of love for something else. It's that I think Peter feels like he doesn't have the capacity to give Jesus the love he deserves. And I think that's the reason he substitutes a somewhat softer word. I have this, I have deep affection for you. I, I love you. And it's the word that means I love you as a friend. It's interesting to note the radical shift for Peter, right? If we trace his trajectory, it's been quite a journey. He starts with that miraculous, first miraculous catch of fish where Jesus, after teaching in Peter's boat, teaching the multitudes, then tells him, go out and cast your net. He says, I've been trying all night, didn't catch anything, but okay, you said so, I'll do it. He does it, and then he has to call in another boat to haul in the catch because they can't even handle it, and the nets are breaking under the strain of the fish. And, and this is Peter's reaction, Luke 5, 8. He falls before Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His initial encounter with Jesus, he was very aware of just how unworthy he was. And Jesus said, Don't worry. 
I'm going to make you fish for men. And that began the discipleship of Peter. He, he left everything behind and started to follow after Jesus. And that initial uh, sense of unworthiness, I think, uh, was replaced by a commitment in Peter's heart to say, I am going to uh, respond to Jesus, the privilege he's given me by inviting me to become his disciple. I am going to respond appropriately and I'm going to give him the best devotion anybody ever gave him. And I am going to be the best of the best of the disciples. And Peter, I think, and we see it in the Gospels, Peter wasn't the only one, I think all of them, somehow conceived of discipleship as a competitive event. And Peter, I think, was convinced in the triathlon of discipleship that he was winning. And he uh, didn't have to ask Jesus for that position at his right hand in the kingdom because he was going to earn it himself. We see kind of the, the apex of that sense of I have given everything and I have achieved the most uh, profound level of commitment to Jesus that final night. Uh, let's read Matthew's version of it. Matthew 26, 33, when Jesus says, you are all going to leave me. Peter says, though they all fall because of you, I will never fall away. Mark says it this way, even though they all fall away, I will not in Mark 14, 29. John's version of it, chapter 13, verse 37, I will lay down my soul for you. So he starts down here and reaches this height where he thinks, I am fully in. I have given it all. Only to hours later realize that no, he hasn't. That when push comes to shove, he would abandon Jesus to torture and death alone because he was too scared. And he loved himself too much. We see that in John 18, 25, when they ask him, you're also, are not one of his disciples, are you? He answered, I am not. That's the trajectory that has brought Jesus, uh, Peter to this moment. And I think it's understandable that we find in Peter a newfound humility. He doesn't know what he can offer Jesus. But to the question, do you love me? Peter says, yeah. If there's anything a coward like me can love, I love you. Peter's brash self-confidence was shattered by his three denials of Jesus. Let me ask you, how have you had to deal with your own failures before Jesus? Let's finish verse 15. He tells him, feed my lambs. So to Peter's affirmation, even though he changes the verb, yes, I love you, I have deep affection for you, you are dear to me, Jesus moves on and says, feed my lambs. That word feed means to take out to graze, to make sure they find food. Uh, in this 
passage, he's going to switch the words around, feed, uh, shepherd. He's going to use different verbs, and he's going to use different words. Initially here, he says lambs. So it's not just sheep. And in John chapter 10, Jesus talked about sheep and how important they are to him. He's talked about his sheep and the fact that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep how everyone who came before him was a, a thief and an, a, 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 a robber, but he is the good shepherd. And Jesus is sharing this most precious treasure of his, his sheep. The flock that knows his voice and heeds his call, the lambs, the sheep that the Father owns and has given to the Son. This is what Jesus is saying to Peter. I entrust them to your care. Jesus knows that within days, uh, within just a couple of months here, there are going to be thousands of brand new people initiating themselves in a life of following after Jesus. And they are going to be looking at Peter and saying, could you tell us about him? What did he teach? What did he say? And G Peter has been training for two and a half years with Jesus. And Jesus has prepared him for this task of all these newborn disciples providing them the nourishment they're going to need to initiate their life of discipleship. Jesus is restoring Peter, not just to himself, not just giving him a chance to speak the truth of his love of Jesus, where before he had said the lie that he didn't even know Jesus, to replace that lie with the truth and to do so before the other disciples, allow him to confess the truth and undo the lie. But in his, It's not just that he's going to restore him to Jesus himself, but he's restoring him to ministry, to the work of discipleship. Jesus restored Peter not only to himself, but to meaningful ministry to others. How has Jesus done the same in your life? Verse 16. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? <coughs> He tells him, yes, Lord, you know that I have deep affection for you. He tells him, shepherd my sheep. Second question, Jesus says exactly the same thing, although this time he leaves out the comparative bit. Uh, he's not asking, do you love me more than these or more than these do? He, he leaves that out. It's clear that Peter has learned uh, that he, he's, he's afraid to compare himself to anybody. But he repeats the question, do you love me? Again, he uses agape, uh, agapeo, do you love me? And again, Peter responds identically, yes, Lord, you know that I have phileo. You know that I phileo you. I love you as a dear friend. I have deep affection for you, but he's still, I think, afraid to use that other word. Afraid that he possibly doesn't have it to give. Jesus gives him a second opportunity to affirm his love. Uh, 
And then he also repeats again the command to minister, but now he's not talking about lambs. He's not saying there's going to be a crisis moment in the very birthing of the church where everybody who knows and has been trained by me is going to need to communicate that teaching to others, and then you can step back and not mess things up. Now it's not lambs he's talking about, it's sheep. And it's not just providing initial nourishment, it's actually shepherding, guiding, leading. He is calling Peter not just to teach, but to lead. And not just to do so in the initial stages of the church, but to do it once those lambs have grown into full-grown sheep, to be a leader among mature believers. To be a shepherd. And Jesus is very clearly looking at the long haul of what he's up to in Peter's life. It's very interesting to me to look and see where Peter arrived in terms of his concept of leadership. Where in the Gospels he's presented as very brash and constantly looking to be in the guy who's in charge of everything. The guy who's the best of the best and everybody else is worse than him. This kind of competitive ministry mindset. Uh, what does he look like years down the road? when he is actually in these, these positions of leadership and he's shepherding other believers. Years into the task, what does he look like? Well, if we read in 1 Peter 5, he tells us in his own words, his own concept of what leadership looks like in the, among the disciples. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think we can safely say that Jesus brought Peter exactly where he told him he was going to bring him. And he discovered what it means to be a leader in the kingdom. And it's not about privilege. It's not about uh, ex exploitation. It's not about being over people and them serving you. It's about serving the flock just as Jesus serves the flock. Jesus anticipates the day in which Peter will lead mature Christians, being a shepherd to them. What do you think maturity in your walk with Jesus should look like? Let's keep reading verse 17. He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you have deep affection for me? Peter was distressed. That the third time he said to him, do you have deep affection for me? And he tells him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I have deep affection for you. Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. The third time Jesus asks the question, and this time he changes his verb. 
This time, Jesus does not use the verb agapeo. He uses phileo, the word Peter has been using. And we're told, John says, Peter was distressed at this third question. And I can think of at least two reasons that would be distressing to him. Perhaps it's the idea, uh, if you keep asking the same question and I keep answering the same way, is it because you don't believe my answer? I already told you that I love you. You asked me again, I told you again. By the third time, I'm thinking, what are you saying, that you don't believe me? <coughs> that you don't trust me? And clearly, Peter can see why Jesus might not believe him. He's already proven himself a liar only recently. Or maybe it's the fact that Jesus has changed his word and is no longer using agape, he's now using phileo. Does that mean that Jesus is saying, you're right, Peter, you're never going to get there. Just, I'll take what little you have to offer. Let's take agape off the table and we'll just, we'll just be dear friends. All of that might have been going through Peter's mind at that moment. I think perhaps it's only later, reflecting back on this moment, that he will realize the significance of three questions before other disciples. Where before he had been asked three times about Jesus, and three times before other people, he had lied about it and denied that he knew Jesus. Jesus now has given him the opportunity three times to affirm the truth. And to erase three lies with three statements of truth in the presence of others. Peter knows he loves Jesus. He knows he's a coward. He knows he doesn't love Jesus the way he deserves to be loved. But what Peter has to give to Jesus, he genuinely wishes to give to Jesus. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And I think what we have here is not Jesus saying, no, Jesus, Peter, you're right, you're never going to get there. I think this is the kindness, the tenderness of Jesus bending low to accommodate Peter where he is. You feel like phileo is all you have to give me. I'll take it. And let's go from here. I will meet you where you are. But notice he immediately repeats this call to ministry. Feed my sheep. I think it is precisely the catastrophic failure of Peter that made him the effective leader he became. He had to be broken of his pride. His self-sufficiency had to be shattered before he would be any use to Christ. And sometimes pain is the only path to usefulness for disciples. Because we are so messed up. So much has to be broken before the right thing can be built in our hearts. But Jesus makes it clear that he's going to get there. He reiterates that he will feed his sheep. 
verse 18, truly, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would fasten clothing on yourself and walk about where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will fasten you and will carry you where you do not want to go. But this he said, indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And having said this, he tells him, follow me. Not only does Jesus give him a chance to affirm three times that he loves Jesus, not only three times does he reiterate that he has work for him to do in the kingdom. But he further tells him, let me tell you what I'm going to do with you. Let me tell you where you're going to end up. Most of the time, God doesn't tell us this kind of thing. But in Peter's case, he made an exception. You're going to eventually do what you failed to do just recently. You promised you'd give your life for me. You'd lay down your soul for me, and you failed. I'm going to do such a work in you that the day will come when you will actually deliver on that commitment. You are one day going to lay down your life for me. And you are going to bring glory to me. He says it kind of obliquely. When you were younger, you would bind on clothing and go wherever you wanted. When you're older, you're going to stretch out your arms and somebody else is going to be binding you. And they're going to carry you off somewhere you don't want to go. And John interprets this for us. And clearly when John is writing this, Peter has already died. And he says, yeah, he was talking about how Peter was going to die. We don't know exactly how it is that Peter died. Let me run quickly through what we, what we do know. Clement of Rome, who wrote about A.D. 96. This is very close to the time uh, of Peter. Uh, he died in 65, something like that. Uh, in a letter, he says, Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who, because of unrighteous jealousy, endured not one or two, but many trials, and thus, having given his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. Most people read that and understand he's talking about a martyr's death, which was becoming uh, more and more uh, a standard of, of deep commitment to Christ in, in the end of the first century. Uh, in Tertullian, around A.D. 212, wrote, At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. So uh, in, in the early uh, 200s, uh, Tertullian is writing, and, and he seems to interpret this in John's Gospel about being bound by others as crucifixion. Now, the fact that Tertullian says that doesn't necessarily mean they knew specifically that that's how he died. Uh, it makes sense that uh, crucifixion does involve being bound to something, uh, but it's not the only way you can be killed uh, that would involve binding you to something. And uh, there are others. Uh, the Acts of Peter around the same time, about A.D. 190, gives a legendary account of Peter where they're kind of... Uh, expanding and, and creating the legend of who Peter is. And in that one, uh, Peter asks to be crucified upside down because he considers himself unworthy of dying as his Lord had died. And the legend is repeated by Eusebius in his church history. He wrote around 315. But honestly, we, we, we can't know with certainty that these later writings, more than 100 years later, that those uh, writers actually knew specifically how it is that Peter died. What we do know is that he 
died because of his faith in Jesus and that he honored God by being willing to die for his faith. Peter's monstrous failure did not disqualify him for ministry, nor did it prevent him from standing firm where he had failed before. What picture does Peter's example paint for your own walk with Jesus? Verse 20, turning back, Peter sees the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had also reclined on his chest during supper and said, Lord, who is the one handing you over? Having seen him, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus says to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. We might think that's the end of it. Peter has been called to follow Jesus. Jesus has painted this picture of what he's going to do with Peter's life. And right then is when Peter turns around, sees John there, and says, and notice how John refuses in his whole gospel to name himself by name. Uh, I think he was worried that too much attention was centering on himself and he constantly wanted to redirect people's attention back to Jesus. So he only ever mentions himself in the gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. That guy that Jesus loved, you guys pay attention to him, but that's the only reason there's any reason to make even notice of this guy is that Jesus loved him. You know, the guy who was on his chest during supper when Jesus said, one of you is going to turn me in. The one who leaned over and said, Jesus, who is it? That guy. <clears throat> Peter sees him and said, Lord, what about him? And it's amazing that already Peter is inching his way back into this comparative approach to the faith. You've talked about me. What are you going to do with John? What's his story? And Jesus says, man, if I want him to stay until the end of the world, what business is that of yours? You know what you need to concern yourself with, Peter? You follow me. The object of your concern or focus should never be this other disciple. It's interesting to me in the Christian faith how we constantly struggle with this. We're always, we're saved gloriously by our Lord Jesus Christ. He forgives our sins. He calls us to faith in him. We enter into this new life in him and are amazed, but immediately we start looking around. What's going on with this guy? What's she up to? And perhaps uh, those of us who are involved in ministry and leadership uh, are looking around to see other leaders. Uh, how, what are they doing? And in the Christian world, oftentimes there's this culture of trying to find out who's captured lightning in a bottle and how do we all get it ourselves. And there's not so much focus on Jesus as there is on who seems to be getting it right. And so many times our leadership conferences are just people scouring the country looking for people that seem to be having success and attracting large numbers of people. Bring them in and tell us your secret. How do you do it? 
And I think Jesus would tell us what he told Peter. What concern is that of yours? You follow me. We can constantly be looking for the latest influencer and trying to figure out what it is we need to do to successfully do this discipleship thing, to be successful in the ministries Jesus has called us to. And looking always around, what kind of shoes do I need to wear? How many hundreds of dollars do I need to spend to attract the it crowd? What influencer do I need to follow on TikTok? And whose sermons do I need to uh, imbibe? And we're constantly looking to other disciples to the point that we're so busy reading their books and listening to their sermons that we don't have time to pray and listen to Jesus. We don't have time to read his word and study and dig into it. We're too busy paying attention to what everybody else is doing. (coughs) And what Jesus says about that is, what is that to you? You need to follow me, not this or that Christian leader. Peter was tempted to turn his attention to John, but Jesus told him to keep his focus on following him. How have you turned your attention to others rather than to following after Jesus? Verse 23. So this saying spread among the siblings that the disciple does not die. But Jesus did not say to him that he does not die, but rather, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and the one writing these things. And we have known that his witness is true. Now there are also many other things which Jesus did. If every, uh, I'm sorry, other things which Jesus did, which if every one of them were to be written, I suppose not even the cosmos itself could contain the scrolls being written. John ends his gospel by trying to correct a mistake. He explains, this is what Jesus said. This was the conversation. And he says, and this is why among Christians right now, this is circulating. That that disciple, in other words, me, John, the guy writing this gospel, that disciple is not going to die. You can imagine what that did to people, right? Because when John writes this gospel, it's probably the early 90s. uh, And at this point, he's probably the last remaining living apostle. Peter was killed like in 65. I mean, it's been decades. And they've all dropped like flies, and John is still around. And so people start saying, well, Jesus did say, if I want him to stay, that means Jesus is going to come before John dies. And you can imagine Christians just watching John and saying, wow, it is close. Jesus is going to be here any minute because this guy's about to croak. He's getting old. And notice what happens when we do it that way. We're so busy watching the signs, we're not watching Jesus. And we continue to do that to this day. 
we take some oblique reference Jesus made where he was making a completely different point and from that we construct this grand thing ah I found the secret code and that means blah 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 and we put out these YouTube videos and people get all worked up about them because we're too busy speculating about what Jesus didn't say to actually pay attention to what he did John says guys cut it out I am not the weather vane of the eschatological hope we have in Christ. I'm just the guy Jesus loved. Stop it. Jesus did not say he's not going to die. Stop saying he did. I was there. I'm telling you what he said. So I think John wants, in concluding his gospel, to again redirect people's attention away from himself and back to Jesus. And then he says, this is, this is the guy writing all of this. And I'm the guy uh, who's telling you all this about Jesus. And we, the group of us who were participants in all of these events I'm telling you about, we know this is a true witness. I am not writing legend. I am not building mythology. I am just telling you the straight-up truth about what I experienced with Jesus. John could end there, but again, he wants to redirect us fully back to Jesus. Now, he says Jesus did a whole lot of other stuff. I think if we tried to write down every single thing he did, I don't think the universe could hold the amount of scrolls we'd have to write. And John is redirecting our attention to Jesus and letting us understand that even he, the oldest living apostle who has this wealth of experience and walking with Christ and all this maturity and wisdom to share all that he brings to the table, he says, all I could do was scratch the surface of what there is to be found in Christ. My gospel is just a little bit. I'm just giving you a taste of what you can find in him. John warns people to look to Jesus, not him, for he alone is unfathomable life and goodness. How have you found this to be true in your life? Following Jesus is hard. Peter himself went from falling at Jesus' feet and begging him to leave him because he was too great a sinner on to thinking he was the best of the disciples, able to stand where all else might fail. And from this dizzying height, arriving at the monstrous realization that he was in fact a coward, ready to abandon Jesus to torture and death to save his own miserable skin. And once more, from this hellish pit to encountering the risen Lord Jesus who still loved him, who affirmed him, who restored him to ministry. And this was just the prelude to Peter's life of discipleship. That was just the opening salvo 
of what it means to follow Jesus in Peter's case. He would go on to a life of hardship, of growth into maturity, of effective ministry, and finally, a martyr's death. This is what John is inviting us all into when he calls us to life everlasting through faith in Jesus, the Messiah and God. Here is the wonder of Jesus. His goodness is so vast, so measureless, so unfathomable that it overshadows the deepest hurt, the most painful experience. It eclipses the hardest task. He is life eternal. And to know Him is to live. We're going to sing a song of invitation and I want to invite you today if you do not know Jesus as the rescuer and Savior and God and Lord of your life do not waste another minute of your life without him there is life nowhere else and Jesus doesn't need you to bring anything but your need to the table if that's you this morning, this is your time to come forward. There are going to be people here at the front. In fact, if y'all would come uh, at this time. Uh, people here to receive you. Come to either side and just tell them, I want to give my life to Jesus. And they will help you uh, say a prayer. And they will guide you and encourage you. Maybe you already follow Jesus and today's been a reminder that you need to redirect your focus that you've been looking everywhere but Jesus. And that has to stop. He needs to be your whole horizon. If that's you today, come and say, Jesus, I am so sorry I've allowed my attention to wander. And I want to give you the fullness of my heart and attention right now. If that's you this morning, come and let these people here just hear you and pray with you and encourage you. We also uh, have the altar open. These boxes uh, might make it a little bit challenging, but if you just need to come forward and kneel and pray, uh, this is your time to do it. Let's stand. Come while we sing.